Well, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are in the middle of our series on Ephesians. We are going through the book of Ephesians, teaching expositorily from the Bible. So, uh, as I gave warning earlier, today is a PG-13 message because the text really draws us to that. So, I want to make sure that if you have children, you're aware of that ahead of time and you're making the choice whether or not to expose your children to um, to the material we're going to talk about. Completely up to you as a parent, but wanted to give you fair warning in case you weren't here before the break. Let's read from Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 7. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no foolish filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or whose covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. With empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy, inspired, and errant word. Thank you that you give us your word and words like this to help us, God. Not to condemn us, Lord, but so that we might be freed from sexual sins. We might be freed from enslavement to all manner of sin, Lord. You give us passages like this so that we can live in a way that's pleasing to you, experiencing joy in you, and full of thanksgiving for what you've done in our lives. So God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be at work to bring the gift of conviction, Lord, but help us not be condemned, knowing that you have put to death in your own flesh, Christ, what what you have done, what we could never do. So God, we ask you to bless this word this morning. Would you bless my preaching? Would you bless all who hear? Give us ears to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine if I had enough bottles of purified water, whatever your favorite brand is, a purified water up here at the front for everybody to have one bottle of water. But then I also had in my hand another bottle. And I tell you that this bottle is full of Filtered sewage, filtered raw sewage water, and it's that sewage is not just regular sewage, but the sewage has got all kinds of parasites and virus and bacteria. And then in front of you, I open that bottle, and with an eyedropper, I go and open up each individual bottle, and I take just a drop, just a drop of that contaminated water, and I, I put it in each bottle of previously purified water. And then I have the ushers hand out all those bottles of water, and then I say, hey, let's drink together. Would you drink it? Hopefully the answer is no. Hopefully the answer is no. Um, you, you wouldn't dare drinking something after I had just told you that this is contaminated sewage. This has got virus and bacteria. It's got parasites in it. But then what if I said, well, no, it, I took a sip of it myself right in front of you. I said, no, it tastes really good. It's actually okay. It doesn't smell bad. It, you can't even tell. If you shake the bottle up, you can't even see anything in there. And actually, it's kind of got a sweet flavor to it. And I took a big swig and tried to convince you that it's okay 
that it won't harm you. There won't be any repercussions from drinking water with parasites and bacteria. What's a few viruses among friends? You think I was crazy. Hopefully. Hopefully you wouldn't take a swig of the water. You throw it away and not drink it because it's contaminated. It's harmful no matter how sweet it might taste or how convincing my words. You knew that they would be empty words. They'd be filled with deceit. And drinking filthy water, you know, will result in, in potentially painful illness and diseases and maybe even death. So as a reasonable person, knowing that water like this has no place in your diet, hopefully you would throw it out. Growing up in the world, all of us have been fed a lie. We've been fed a poisonous, contaminated lie. A lie that said we can live as we want to, there's no consequences. We can take into ourselves all manner of sin and not be contaminated. We're told by the world that we can drink from the waters, really, of of sexual immorality and idolatry. And you're going to be okay. You'll be just fine. It tastes good, actually. It's all right. You can drink it. You can take this into yourself and not be defiled, not be contaminated. But really, there's going to be effects. It's not okay. You can't drink contaminated water. You can't drink in sexual immorality and impurity and idolatry without there being some effect on you. And so Paul is telling us in Ephesians that it's not okay. It's not okay for Christians to drink of contaminated waters. See, we're, we're meant to drink from the, the, living, the living water of life, Jesus Christ himself, but not from other places, other sources. Paul's speaking to legitimate Christians in Ephesians. It's important to know that at the outset of this message. It's important to know that Paul's not speaking to people he doubts whether or not they place their faith in Jesus Christ. But he's speaking to legitimate Christians. And that's, that's hope giving for you and I. Because all of us will experience temptation to sexual immorality, impurity, and, and sexual greed or idolatry or covetousness. And it's important to remember that as Paul is speaking in Ephesians to legitimate Christians, so this word too is for legitimate Christians. People who have been saved by God's grace, but yet they have come out of that lifestyle or are tempted by the world around us. And we're tempted to drink contaminated water. And he's saying, you know, you've been washed, you've been made clean, you've been purified with the blood of Jesus Christ and made holy, completely acceptable before God. You're, you're saints before God. He's saying it's not right, it's not good for you to participate because of that. Because you're, you've been purified by Christ, you've been made holy, you've been made saints. It's not good for you to drink to participate in any kind of sexual sin and idolatry as God's people, it will contaminate you. And then he goes on to say, don't be deceived. There's consequences from participating in the same kind of sinful lifestyle that you once were a part of. And so the, the main idea we're going to look at from the passage this morning, and we don't have overhead, so you'll have to actually write it down today. It's that sexual sins, the main idea, sexual sins and idolatry... Sexual sins and idolatry are inappropriate for God's people. Sexual sins and idolatry are inappropriate for God's people who should be full of thanksgiving. One more time. Sexual sins and idolatry are inappropriate for God's people who should be full of thanksgiving. You see, we've been made pure. We've been made clean in God's sight. And now, early in Ephesians, it tells us that our bodies are the actual dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And early in Ephesians, we saw that 
not only are our own individual bodies dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that to collectively, as His church, His holy saints, His people, were being made together into His temple. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We're resting on the cornerstone of Jesus, made into a dwelling place for God collectively. And so, because of that, we are, we are called saints. But not only are we called saints in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, we're also called beloved children. Now, the only way for us to be beloved children is if God no longer counts our sins against us and we are holy in His sight because God's presence can bear no sin. He, he cannot have those who are His children who are sinful or considered sinful. And so what He has done, and it tells us in verse 2, is that Christ Jesus Himself has offered Himself up as a living sacrifice for us. As a sacrifice on our behalf, He offered up His own life in our place. And so now God looks at us in verse Three, as saints, God's holy people. And so because we're called saints, we're going to see that the first thing there in verse 3 is that there must be no sexual sins and idolatry among God's holy people. That's point number one. There must be no sexual sins and idolatry among God's holy people. He doesn't give room. He says there must be no, no sexual sins and idolatry among God's holy people. In this passage, the main context, all of the the words that he gives have to do and revolve around sexual sin. These aren't unrelated things. He says from sexual immorality to impurity to covetousness and filthy talk and coarse jesting. And Paul's saying there must not be any sexual sin even named amongst God's holy people, his saints. And if you look up the word that the original Greek word for sexual immorality that's used here, it's used throughout the New Testament and it has a wide range of usage. And to be clear, this word for sexual immorality, it's not just sexual intercourse. It involves any kind of sexual relationship, any kind of sexual knowing of somebody else, either visually or physically, outside of the God-given relationship of a marriage between one man and one woman. Any kind of sexual knowing and seeing, visually, physically, knowing someone else outside of the context of a God-given marriage between one man and one woman, that's sexual immorality. And that implies to a broad spectrum of things. It includes any kind of sexual touching, engaging in any kind of lustful activity, looking at pornography, committing adultery, any... Any sexual contact before marriage includes prostitution, all manner of sexual sins. So when Paul says all impurity as well, that, that compounds what he's saying. It refers to, often refers to unrestrained sexual behavior, and you can find it combined with sexual immorality as a list of sins that we are to put off as believers at least three other times in the New Testament as Paul is writing in Colossians and Thessalonians and Corinthians, put off not only sexual immorality, but Impurity as well. Unrestrained sexual behavior. Together these two vices have to do with the pre-Christian life. Who you were called out of. You are no longer the old man. You've now been made the new man. And these, these vices are, are, have to do with the old man. They flow from a heart though that's, that's committed to indulging in self-centered natural lust versus a heart that worships God. And so that's why we have the third term that he uses, and he, he uses the term covetousness. So not only is it sexual immorality, impurity, but then he says covetousness as well. And what he's driving at, what he's hoping for us to see, is that these things stem from a heart that seeks after pleasure, 
a heart that desires something other than God to satisfy. A desire, a craving for something as if that will bring satisfaction. So he's, he speaks something about a sexual lust, a idolatrous obsession. When one places self-gratification for sex or getting something from somebody else as if it's the most thing most highly to be worshipped. And so we exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature. These sins are so serious that Paul wants them, the reader to take them seriously. So he says that they must not even be named among you. They must not even be named among you. Not only should you not do these things, they shouldn't even be named among you. You shouldn't include them when you talk about any Christian. They shouldn't be named among you. A list of sins that Christians commit. Not only would not to mention them, they're, they're not to characterize God's people or be found among God's people. Not only should we avoid doing them, the, the connotation is we should avoid thinking about them and talking about them. And the motivation is that he gives us is that we've been called to be God's holy people. See, we're God's holy people and because we're God's holy people, because we're saints, because he's made us a new creation, because he's made us holy, we're to no longer have anything to do with sexual sins and idolatry. It's appropriate that we only do what's proper, he says, for those who are saints. So that means you have to think about, what does God call us to be? Who does he call us to be? What does he call us to do? How does he call us to think? And then in verse 4, alongside the three vices or sins that he listed in verse 3, Paul lists three other parallel things, really manifestations in our speech that flow from a heart of covetousness. And, and these three things that he lists, each of these three Greek words, the ESV renders filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. They're only found here in the New Testament context. And in this context, it's evident that he's speaking about things that relate to sexual impurity, sexual immorality, idolatry. That's really at the root of all of these sins. You see, when we give ourselves over to, to coarse jesting, crude jesting, crude speech, when we give ourselves over to sexual immorality and idolatry and impurity, it flows from a desire that says, I, I want to be satisfied outside of Christ. I'm looking outside of Jesus and for my satisfaction, my sense of fulfillment. And then we're told as well, not, not only is there no, be no filthiness, no obscene speech as Christians, we're not to use any obscene words or talk about obscene things or speak about things in an obscene way, but in addition to that, we're not to let there be any foolish talk, any kind of talk that belongs to fools. This degrading talk, the kind of talk that's without wisdom that leads to foolishness. And then the last type of speech that we're told to put away is crude or coarse jesting. And that's the kind of speech that's filled with sexual innuendos or sexual overtones. You see, all of these terms, why does he mention not only actions, but he mentions speech as well? Because all of these things flow from a heart and all of these terms reveal that a dirty and impure mind, an immoral, idolatrous mind that expresses itself in vulgar conversation. Imagine if you went to the museum because you heard that they had all of Rembrandt's works. They were bringing all of Rembrandt's works to the local museum in town. And you go to the museum on the green and they have all of Rembrandt's works and you're excited because you've seen his works on the internet, you've seen them in print, you've seen reproductions, you love Rembrandt. Um, what a wonderful master. He captures the nuances, nuances of, of, of human expression in people's faces. And so you go, you're excited, and you show up, and then you find that something is amiss. Something is not quite right. Something's out of place. Something's completely out of place with each picture. And 
And when you look from picture to picture, you see that somebody has thought that they needed to lighten up Rembrandt's work a little. Because, you know, Rembrandt's work's a little dark sometimes. It's got full shadows and it's kind of dark and mysterious. And so they, they need to lighten up Rembrandt's work a little bit. So Museum of the Green, the curator decided, you know what, I, I like this collection, but it's really depressing. So they take a neon Sharpie and they, they, they draw smiley faces on each of the characters in each of Rembrandt's portraits. It would be out of place. It would be out of place to have neon smiley faces on Rembrandt's portraits. It would be vulgar. It wouldn't be fitting. It would be like introducing a worship song to you that had vulgar obscenities in it. It would be completely out of place with the purpose of worship. And so in verse 4, what Paul is reiterating, he says, this kind of talking, it has no place. It's, it's, it's like putting a, a neon smiley face on a Rembrandt. It's, it's, that's a work of art. Made by a masterful creator. You have been remade into God's image by the master creator. And so it's, it's this gaudy thing when we have filthy speech and coarse jesting. It draws attention to ourselves that's really out of place with the purpose of what God's made us to be as image bearers of his son. He's made us to be worshipers. And so it's completely out of place that you'd find any of this kind of speech amongst God's people. And then look down in verse 5 and 6, if you will. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, look on with somebody with you. Not only are they out of these things out of place, in verse 5 and 6, it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is Paul saying here? Well, it's very clear. You see, the second thing we're going to look at, the second point that we can get just from these verses, it's very clear, and it's that point number two, there are sure consequences for sexual sins. There are sure consequences for sexual sins. He says, you may be sure of this. You can be certain of this. There are consequences for participating in, for persisting in these sins. It's telling us the person who continues in these sins, not just the person who commits these sins as a believer, trying not to, falling into sin, repenting, confessing sin, trying to put off and put on. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about someone who is sexually immoral. It's a persistent sexual immorality. Somebody who persists in a way of impurity. Somebody who persists in idolatry. And he says, these kind of people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he says, because of these things, don't be deceived. The wrath of God comes upon those who live in disobedience like this. Paul's language here is very strong. We're meant to be affected by language like this. It's very strong language. Language like this should be concerning to us, especially if we have been caught in sins like this. It's meant to wake us up. We'll see next week, actually, that, that Paul follows up on that idea of waking up. And he says, wake up, sleeper. Don't be asleep. Don't live like this. He gives a strong and broad warning language. And we're meant to be warned by it. We're meant to avoid it. We're meant to see the seriousness of living in a persistent pattern of these sins. When I was about 20 years old, I was outside underneath my car working on it. My car was constantly in need of being worked on, and so I got to learn a lot about car maintenance. But I was out there one day, and underneath my car, and my neighbor didn't think anything. I was about my same age. He walks out, and he says, hey. I was like, hey, man. 
And he's like, hey, catch you later. So he, he left. And then a couple hours later, I find out, not thinking anything of it, that after seeing me, saying goodbye, he had walked into a grocery store five minutes down the road and he had he collapsed and he died instantly. And it, they comes to find out that he was huffing some kind of or inhaling some kind of aerosol-based uh, propellant, trying to get high, and it had severe consequences. It caused a brain hemorrhage and he died. And, and I've told that story to my children multiple times. Not because I like telling my children frightening stories, but because I love my children and I want to keep them. I want to warn them away from things that can be harmful for them. You see, that, that kid, he was probably 19 years old. He, he didn't realize the effects that it would have on him. He thought it would just make him high. He was told by his friends that it was no big deal, that they didn't have really any effect. You could do these things and there wouldn't be any long-term effect. But it resulted in his death. And so I warn my children because I love them. And I want them to know that there's consequences to engaging in that kind of behavior. If they don't, if, if, if even if it doesn't happen right away, even if they don't see the damage that it does, it will certainly do damage. And so I warn them away. And so God is warning us because we're beloved children in verses 1 and 2. He calls us beloved children. And so why do we have passages like this? He, we have passages like this to warn us away from things that will result in our death, things that will result in harm to us if we persist in them. And so he warns us away from this kind of speaking, this kind of behavior, these kinds of actions. And then and Paul says, um, I'm, I want to warn you, these, these things are not without consequences. There are sure consequences. You can be sure there are consequences for persisting in sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, unrestrained sexual greed and being an idolater. And he's inclusive here. He says, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, everyone who is the kind of person who persists in sexual immorality or impurity, who's covetousness, who's covetous, that is an idolater. Everybody who doesn't seek to put off sexual immorality or impurity and idolatry that, that motivates us is included. Everybody who makes a practice of these things, he's saying, has no part with the true children of God. That is some serious consequences. Everybody who practices those is, is demonstrated as being an immoral, impure, and idolatrous. And so because of that, there's no part for them in inheriting the kingdom that Jesus Christ came to bring about. You have no part in being a part of God's people. So what's Paul talking about? Is he saying we can lose our inheritance? He can't be because earlier in Ephesians, and if you flip it back there, just hold your place in Ephesians 5 for a moment and flip back to Ephesians 1, just a few pages earlier. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, he tells us, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. So when you heard the truth, the gospel of the salvation, you recognized His salvation, you believed in Him. It says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so what he's saying is that if you've been truly born again, if you place your faith in Christ, you have been sealed, your inheritance is guaranteed, but, so in these verses, if you are persisting in sexual immorality, impurity, engaging in this kind of behavior and speech, hear the warning from Scripture that you might be deceived into thinking you truly are a believer when you may not be. 
And why is he telling us things? To freak us out? To make us doubt our salvation? No, it's so that we may be sure. We may be sure of our salvation and turn and run to him and, and repent and turn and say, I want to be done with those things and I want to place all my faith, all my hope in the steadfast love of Jesus on my behalf. So it's not possible for one who has been truly born again to be unsealed because the Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us to the end. It says that um, God holds us in his hand. No one can take us from his hand. But it is possible for somebody to live like they're a believer and yet never place their hope in Christ and to, to be sinning continually in these areas and fail to repent. And he's saying this really evidence that that person has no inheritance in the kingdom. Those who live constantly giving themselves over these things show, they demonstrate that they're not Christians, even though they may call themselves Christians. So he's not talking about the true believer that commits these sins. And let me take a moment and say that everybody in this room, to some degree, every true believer, every legitimate Christian in this room, to some degree, has committed one or more of these sins since becoming a Christian. It's a guarantee. I don't know any believer who has not in some way been sexually immoral in their thinking or impure in their thoughts or idolatrous in their thoughts or in some way spoke in a way that they should not have. And what Paul's saying, he's, he's not saying these are unforgivable sins. You need to hear that today. These aren't unforgivable sins. God's grace is available to you if you currently find yourself trapped in one of these sins. There is freedom to be found in this passage of Scripture. Not condemnation, freedom, true freedom as you... Confess your sins, repent, and find your hope in Christ. There's forgiveness available. There's freedom and redemption in Christ Jesus. Legitimate Christians can sin in these areas, but you won't continue to sin without repenting. Christians are to seek to actively then put off these sins and put on the, put off the idolatrous, self-centered cravings that, that feed these sins. And see, the people that are in view are those who have given themselves up to these sins. And if you're wondering, that's a good thing. That's meant to create in us a desire, a longing to be done with our sin. And to say, I want to wonder no longer. You don't have to wonder past today. You don't have to wonder past now and say, God, I put my hope in you. I'm going to forsake all my sins. I don't know. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have a, a magical date and time, you know, when you became a Christian. There's no such thing. It's a mystery. It's, it's like the wind blowing, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit comes. It's, it's, it's not important the, the moment that it occurs, just that you know that you are sure that you've repented, placed your faith, your hope in Christ. And so if you fall into this camp, the answer is repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and live out who you've already been called to be. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, here's the good news. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified not by your own efforts, not by your own works. He tells us you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here is our hope that justification is not in our works, it's not even in our putting off. Our hope is in the fact that we've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God and that He's the one who washes us. He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who makes us holy. Holy. 
And so in light of who we've been made to be, we're to flee sins that we're prone to and committed before. Flee sexual sins. He's not saying we earn Christianity by putting these things off. You don't. You don't earn favor before God. But in the context, you put these things off as an offering to God. In verse 2 of Ephesians 5, you can flip back over there. Look in verse 2. It says, we're to love like Jesus did who offered himself up. Now, his offering is the only acceptable one, but we're to love in the same way and offer up our lives because he has given his life. And so when we respond today, putting off these kinds of things, it's not meant to earn favor, but it's in worship to God for the fact that, Jesus, you made your life an offering so that I now can offer up my life in worship to you. And then in verse 6, if you look down in your Bibles for a moment, You can see there, it says, Paul is saying, don't be deceived. He says, don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You see, some people are going to tell you that this kind of behavior has no consequences. But Paul says, one must not be deceived in the thinking that they're continually getting themselves over this kinds of things. He says, they're not being ruled by the kingdom of Christ. You're not, you're not under his rule. You have no place in his kingdom. Christ is not the one ruling your hearts, but self is the one ruling. And so, as it said in verse 5, there's no future inheritance also in God for those who are currently not in the kingdom of Christ, under the, the rule of Christ. So Paul says, let no one deceive you. Don't think that you can drink that kind of water and not be tainted. Don't let anybody deceive you. It's poisonous. Don't be deceived into... Some of the ways we can be deceived. Don't be deceived into redefining words for sexual immorality, looking for excuses for your sin. I've done that. Growing up in, in, in the Christian home, I, I knew how to act and behave externally, but in my heart, I, I was carried away by various lusts. And so I learned to excuse away my, my sins by reinterpreting Scripture to say what I wanted it to say. Don't, don't be deceived that way. Don't be deceived by redefining words for sexual immorality and impurity narrowly to thinking that just means, well, it just means intercourse and pornography. That's that's all it means. As long as you don't do those two things, I'm okay. Don't be deceived in Scripture. It includes any kind of sexual knowing outside of a God-ordained marriage, any kind of touching or seeing somebody else's sexual parts for your pleasure outside of the marriage that God has given between one man and one woman. It includes any kind of sexual activity outside of with your own spouse, no matter whether your spouse consents to it or not. Let no one deceive you with such empty words. The Apostle says this by the Holy Spirit because it's very possible to be self-deceived in these areas. It's even possible as a believer to be deceived in these areas to thinking that it's okay. It's, It's possible to be deceived into toying with these sins, excusing these sins, and justifying these sins. It's very easy for a husband or a wife and And let me say that this is not, these are not a category of sins that are limited to men alone. Ladies struggle with these same sins as well. But there's a stigma for a woman that if she struggles with these sins, there must be something wrong with her. No, it's not true. You know what's wrong? We have the same thing wrong with each and every one of us. Idolatrous cravings in our hearts. It's the same common root. And so it's easy for a husband or wife to deceive themselves and engage with pornography when they make the excuse that my spouse isn't satisfying my needs sexually. Don't be deceived. It's easy for a young boy or a girl to make the excuse that looking at pornography on their phone isn't hurting anybody. It's just 
It's just satisfying sexual curiosity in a safe way because after all, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything wrong. We're not having sex after all. Paul is telling you, don't be deceived. It's easy for a team to claim because they aren't sexually immoral because after all, the kind of activities they're engaging in is not intercourse. It's everything but that. And so it's accepted by everybody else and everybody else is doing it. And so it doesn't really mean anything. Don't be deceived. And by the way, the majority, I think it was like 70-some percent of people 14 and up have been exposed in some way to the idea and, and, and hold to the idea that if it's not intercourse, that it's it's okay. It's easy for a spouse to claim that it's okay to look at somebody else they aren't married to, to fantasize lustfully because they don't feel any love for their spouse. And after all, God wants me to be happy. Paul says, don't be deceived. That leads straight to adultery and even more self-deceit. And Paul's warning Christians away from such empty, he calls them empty, deceitful words, like me trying to convince you that it's okay to drink poisoned water. That's just empty, deceitful words. And the same way, they're empty, deceitful words to think that sex before marriage is, is loving somebody else, despite what you may tell yourself, sexual sin. Even with somebody you say you really love, it's not loving. Well, we, we love each other in our hearts. But that's not true love. It's, it's not self-sacrificing love. It's self-gratifying love, which is no love at all. It's stealing from somebody else. It's taking from somebody else for your own pre- pleasure. Why is pornography wrong? The same reason. It's using somebody else who's been made in the image of God for your own selfish pleasures that God never intended. And it's not harmless either. In, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you can write that scripture down. You don't have to go there. But in 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Whoa! So wait a minute. This isn't just about... I'm just... This is just about me. Nobody else is getting hurt. No, you're sinning against your own body. And not only that... In Scripture, it tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians, we know as well that we together are being built into His temple. And so it has an effect not just on our own selves personally, sinning against our own body. It has an effect on the church as well, on this body. Don't be deceived. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we offer ourselves up to the worship of self, we sin against our own body and we sin against the body of Christ. In addition, fornication, the attitude that, that just asks that I did when I was a, a young person, that I, I, I had the wrong question in my head. See, I, I had the question of just how far can a Christian go physically outside of marriage? And that's a selfish, self-centered attitude. It's driven by asking the wrong question. The question we should be asking instead is, what would help this other person love God more and be pure and holy as God has called us to be pure and holy? What would guard this other person's integrity and holiness? What would be truly loving and self-sacrificing in the way that Christ gave himself up for the church so that the church might be made holy? How can I love like that? Truly walking in love, as we saw last week in verse 2, that's what... That's what motivates all of these commands. You see, the, from, from chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 6, it's guided by verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. You can look down in chapter 5 for a moment. Look down in your Bibles, and it says that we're to walk in love. And that's really the, 
the framework for all the rest of the commands and all of the rest of the things we see in chapter 5 and chapter 6. They're guided by one principle. Walk in love. How? As Christ has loved us and given Himself up for us. That's to guide all of our lives, all of our interactions, all of our walk is to be guided by walking in love as beloved children of God. So true love looks like dying to our own desires, putting the best interest of the other person first as God defines them, not as they say they need them or want them because others can deceive you and say, well, I just need this. You know, if we're going to be together, I have to have this. Despite what your boyfriend or girlfriend says, what they need sexually, it's not what's best for them. It's not truly loving to give in no matter what they say. Despite your desires and claiming a sufficient declaration of your love and you just, I just express my love physically. It's the complete opposite of love to be with somebody like that before marriage. And, and this, is, this is something that's very common for all of us. And if you've come from that past, please don't experience any condemnation. You see, I, I come from that very same past as well. Before I was married, I deceived myself into thinking that it's okay to fornicate as long as we don't have intercourse. I, I justified sexual immorality by saying it's okay to do things because it's like we're married in our hearts. And God looks at the heart after all, doesn't he? But he was looking at my idolatrous cravings and saying, no, don't be deceived. What I was really doing was making excuses to, to get me what I wanted to gratify my idolatrous cravings. And, and that's what we do whenever we engage in, in pursuing pleasures outside of God's good plan for us. You see, God actually wants us to experience pleasure in him. He wants us to experience satisfaction in him. He wants us to experience joy and love in Him. He even wants us to experience sex and all the wonders of sex in Him. Paul is not being approved. He's not condemning all sex. Well, no, not at all. He's actually encouraging it. Now, I'll get to that in a minute. But he's encouraging in, in, in a godly context. Thanks be to God. He, God broke through my self-deceit. He brought His gracious gift of conviction that led to repentance and real change. The purpose of Paul speaking to the Christians in this letter is so that they might experience conviction and real change and be free. Not so they might be condemned. You know, even more today, we're constantly, constantly surrounded by temptations to live in sexual immorality and impurity and idolatry. Whether or not you're married, single, whatever your status of life is, Paul was writing to people in the area around Ephesus and Christians in that day, they were faced with all manner of temptations to perversion and all manner of sexual sins. And I don't think that the kind of sexual sins we're tempted to are any worse, but I do believe they're more prevalent in how we see them and how we're exposed to them. We have this thing called the Internet, right? Um, it's on our phones, it's on tablets, it's all over the place, and it exposes us to pervasive sexual immorality and idolatry and we can be tempted. It's on crude speech on the airwaves and television and movies in our daily lives. We can be deceived into thinking it's okay to watch suggestive entertainment but it really cultivates idolatry in our hearts. We can be deceived into thinking that not taking measures to block pornography from our computers, our phones, our tablets, that's fine because we don't struggle there. We'll be okay and our other family members, they're going to be okay too. They're not going to be tempted that way. But don't be deceived. Church, I want to warn you because Scripture warns us because it cares for us. God cares for us. I care for you. Don't be foolish. Don't be naive. Don't be deceived. 
The world we live in, access to pornography and sexual sins abounds. They're around us. They're accepted as the norm. No longer are sexual sins and deviant behavior taboo. They are expected and encouraged and shoved in our faces. According to a non-religious, it's not a Christian study, a non-religious survey of college students back in 2006, so seven years ago, and I think it's probably gotten worse, a total of 93.2%, 93.2% of all males that they surveyed had been exposed to pornography before the age of 18. Don't be deceived. Seven years ago, the average age for the first, seven years ago, the average age for the first exposure to pornography was at age 14. And it's not a male problem either. Although males tend to struggle with this sin more, more often, normal, legitimate women and men both are tempted in this area. And there's hope for you, there's freedom for you to confess these sins, to be free from these sins. To go and find help from a small group leader, from some other mature Christian here, from from one of the pastors. According to another study, approximately 20% of boys aged 12 to 17 admit that they lied about their age in order to gain access to a pornographic website. In 2008, 813 young adults aged 18 to 26 were asked about their use and views of pornography. 86% of those surveyed reported using pornography in the past year and half that number were regular weekly viewers of pornography. What was once unthinkable in the culture is now accepted in the culture and it's accepted in the church as well, but it's not acceptable. It's not proper. It's out of place. It's not fitting. Don't be deceived. Also, at the same time, I want you to hear that because of how prevalent it is, I, I, I know, I'm sure, I don't have to ask, I don't have to wonder if 93% of those surveyed had been exposed to it, if 86% of people between 18 and 26 had engaged in it. I'm guessing, the pretty good likelihood, that that applies to people in this room and probably a good number in this room. And so there's hope. There's hope here. Don't be deceived. It's the first thing. Don't deceive yourself. Acknowledge that what God says is true is true. Turn from that and turn to Him. Don't be deceived into believing the cultural lie that your bodies are your own. If you are a Christian, Scripture tells us that you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to God. It says that He has bought you with a price, the precious price of the death of Jesus' Son. He's ransomed. Why did He do that? He did that to ransom you, to buy you out of slavery. Don't enslave yourselves and submit yourselves as slaves to sin any longer. He bought you with a price to redeem you from slavery for your joy. This, This message is not about making you feel bad. This is actually about you finding joy in Him. See, He's ransomed you so that you can glorify God in your bodies and not be trapped in deceit. He says at the end of verse 6, don't be deceived. Then he moves on to explain the third thing we're looking at. Look down at verse 6 and 7. It's clear. Look in your Bibles for a moment. Verse 6 and 7. It's clear. Don't be deceived. And he tells us some consequences. And, and point three from that is, there must be no partnership with those who practice these things. There must be no partnership with those who practice those things. And in verse 7 it says, therefore do not associate with them, those who are the sons of disobedience who practice those things. There must be no partnership with those who practice these things. The wrath of God is coming on all the sons of disobedience who live this way is what it's telling us. And this is not who you have been called to be. 
God's called you. He's, he's made you into his image to be remade into his likeness. And day by day, he's making you more and more into his image. He's, he's no longer are you called sons and daughters of wrath. In verse 2 of chapter 5, he said, if you've repented and believed in Jesus for salvation, you and I have been called and adopted as God's beloved children. So, because of that, have no partnership with those who practice those things. The original word, he says, don't associate is, it's translated, don't be partakers really with them. Don't be associated, don't be partakers with those who practice this kind of thing. It's the same word that was used earlier in Ephesians 3, 6, and we were told that Jews and Gentiles alike are now partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Same word, don't be associated with them, don't be partakers with them, because you are now partakers of the promise. So what does he mean here? Does he mean don't associate with unbelievers? Well, he can't mean that. It's not possible that he means that. Why? Well, we, we can see that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, you can, you can write that down. You don't have to go there. But in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, he talks about how we're not to isolate ourselves from unbelievers because if we're going to do that, we'd have to go out of this world. There's no way you can do that. And also, we're encouraged to actually befriend those who are trapped in sin. What he's saying is don't participate together. Don't be partakers together with others who are participating in this kind of sin. So what are some practical ways to not be partakers or associate with them? It includes practical measures like not participating in watching pornography, not looking at it or reading sexually tempted materials or stories. Let me just give you a practical word of advice. If you have any kind of connected device, a smartphone, tablet, computer, you should be taking some practical steps to not be a partaker of sexual sins. Go get a program, get a password for your account, give it to your spouse so you can't override it, give it to a friend, a roommate so you can't override it, and I suggest you disable whatever the default, if you have like an iPhone or Android, something like that, disable the default browser, get something that does filtering, even if you aren't tempted. Your spouse, your roommate, your child, they might be, they could be exposed to something harmful. They could struggle with something that could stir up desires and may not have otherwise been tempted. And what's the motivation here? It's that in every way, our lives might be an offering to Him. We might love God as an offering to Him. You see, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not our own. We're called to glorify God with our own bodies. and We're to be imitators of God's beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. We're to love God in this way. And you see, sexual sins are the direct opposite of walking in love and giving ourselves up for another's good. You see, sexual sins are unloving and it's taking from others for our good. It's the opposite of living our lives as a fragrant offering to God. It's done for our own good and they harm our, not only ourselves but others. They're self-indulgent instead of self-sacrificing. Self-worship instead of God-worship. And, and, and let me say, if you are in a married relationship, you can worship God through sex. You can worship God. You can give thanks to God by enjoying the gift that He's given. But we're not meant to be self-satisfied, self-gratifying to the exclusion of worship of God. So sexual sins and greed, they can enslave us. They can rob us of our voice to speak out against enslavement to sin. They can rob you of your ability to be disciples of Jesus Christ who are sharing the good news. Why? Because you feel like, you know what, I'm dirty and I can't really share the good news. 
Because I looked at pornography this week and I don't, I don't, I can't speak up. And so they can make you feel that way. These kinds of sins hurt you. They hurt your witness. They hurt your ability as a Christian. Not only that, they keep you from experiencing God's love for you. They keep you from experiencing joy. That's why Paul's writing to us. He's not writing for our condemnation. He's writing for our joy. God wants you to enjoy Him. He doesn't want to be Ephesians to be trapped in these kinds of sin. And, and Paul is not just writing to the Ephesians. Through the Holy Spirit, he's writing to us. He doesn't want us to be trapped. Because legitimate Christians will be tempted in this way. So I think the Holy Spirit, he's speaking to all of us. And he's, he's telling us, don't be trapped by these things. Don't be deceived by these things. Instead, enjoy the love of God as a beloved children. Be free from these things that seek to put you in chains. And the last point that we're going to close with this morning is that something I intentionally skipped over, and I hope you called it earlier in verse 4. I hope you caught the the put-on that I skipped over earlier because whenever we're given these put-offs, we're also given a put-on. This is a continuation of what the whole thing is. Paul's saying, don't be like the old man, but be like the new man. Don't just put off, but look in verse 4. There's six words there. starts with the word but. It says, but instead let there be... What's the word? You can say it together. Let there be thanksgiving. So the last point is the antidote, point number four, the antidote to sexual sins... And idolatry is thanksgiving. The antidote to sexual sins and idolatry is thanksgiving. It's an antidote to sexual sins and idolatry. How in the world does that work? How is that related? Why is Paul telling us to instead let there be thanksgiving? You see, he gives us all these, all six of these put-offs, all, all six of these things that relate to sexual sins. And then he tells us this surprising thing. He says, put on something Someone unexpected, isn't it? Wouldn't you expect to hear that if you are engaging in sexual immorality to, to put off sexual immorality and put on holiness, right? Or put off impurity and put on purity because we are called to be holy. We're all called, we're all called to be pure. He doesn't just say put off filthy speech instead of put on kind speech. He doesn't say any of those things. That's a little surprising. If I was writing that, I probably would have said well, put off this and what's the natural thing to put on is this other thing here. But... He says, he doesn't tell us those things, but instead, he says something that gets at our hearts. Because this is not about mere behaviorism. He doesn't tell the readers to put off those things and put on generosity or put on holiness or put on purity. But he speaks to our hearts. You see, these sins all flow out of a heart that seeks self, that doesn't love God, but loves ourselves above God. And so he tells us something very shocking. He says, the antidote to this selfishness, the antidote, the thing that you need to put on is let there be thanksgiving. The thing to drive godly behavior and godly speech, it, it, it will come from a heart of thanksgiving, not a heart of idolatry, but a heart that looks to God for all your needs and gives thanks to God for your needs. That's the opposite of a heart of idolatry. It's a heart that says, God, I worship you. I give thanks to you because you are all that I need and I'm giving thanks to you, Lord. That is why he tells us to put on thanksgiving because it hits right at the core of the issue. It's idolatry. It's covetousness. It's saying that, God, we don't have all we need. You are not enough. We need other things. And so what is the response to that idolatrous heart? It's thanksgiving and saying, God, I want to see that you've given me all that I need, no matter how hard it is. That you are all that I want. That you are what's best for me. 
Your way is what's best for me, God. And I want to give thanks to you out of a heart of gratitude for what you've given to me. And so we're called, called to put on a heart of thankfulness as opposed to a heart of desire that never has enough and always wants more. A heart that says, I'm grateful for my spouse even when they are not the spouse I thought I would have. I'm grateful, Lord, to you. Not because they, they satisfy me, Lord. They may never satisfy me. But God, you satisfy me. So that's how you can put on thankfulness. Putting on an attitude that says, I'm content, Lord, with what you've given to me. It's being content and thankful for the gifts that we have, for his design, instead of bristling against it. It's being thankful for God's provision in the season we're in, instead of being self-seeking. Being thankful to God, it speaks of worshiping God of, instead of worshiping self. It's a recognition of God's generosity to us instead of being greedy for our own desires. That's how it relates. There's a quote I want to share with you by uh, Peter O'Brien. He says, Thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. Thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. It is the response of gratitude to God's saving activity in creation and redemption. And thus a recognition that He is the ultimate source of every blessing. It's not saying that we have everything we need or that situations or circumstances, that person in our life is the person we had hoped for. It's not saying that. It's saying, God, despite all of that, you are the source of every blessing and I'll give thanks to you. You see, Thanksgiving demonstrates a Christian attitude towards sex that's completely opposite of the way the world views sex. Paul's not being a prude here. The Christian walk, it's meant to be a walk of joy and enjoying all the good gifts that God gives to us. And sex is a gift that God gives to those who are married. Christians are not to be anti-sex. And that's not what this passage is about. Don't be anti-sex if you're married. And don't be preaching that Christians are against sex. We're not. We're all for it. We're all for God's design. In fact, we're to celebrate. And in this context, we're not just at Thanksgiving that's broad. If you're married and, and, and you've been given this gift... You're to celebrate this, this gift of sex and sexual intercourse within a loving, monogamous, heterosexual marriage as God designed. Not only should we celebrate sex inside of marriage, we need, we're told to be, let there be thanksgiving. And it's related to all that God gives us, and it specifically as it relates to God-ordained sex. So we're not called to be prudes, we're just called to rejoice in the place that God's designed it that will bring us greater joy than experiencing outside of what God's designed. So giving God honor and thanksgiving, it's important. It keeps us grateful. It keeps us focused on God as a source of every blessing. Instead of looking to other places for what, to give us what we want. Fundamentally, thanksgiving speaks of a heart of worship to God and, and a life lived for God instead of living for yourselves. So if you've been struggling with any of these sins, repent. And then what do you need to do? Put on thanksgiving. Put on thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what Christ has done. Focus your thoughts, your attentions on the fact that you have all you need. Every spiritual blessing has been given to you. Go back and read through all of Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing has been given to you in Christ Jesus. We have been given all we need for life and godliness. We've been made His people. We've been part, brought to a part of His church. Even though we struggle, we have difficulties, trials in this life that stink. We can give thanks to God for what Christ has done. 
And thanksgiving is meant to be the antidote because it puts to death idolatry that feeds these sins. It's like killing the roots of a tree will eventually kill that tree were to put on thanksgiving. Couldn't ask the band to come forward this morning. I think God wants to, to free many within our mix. And go ahead and stand, if you will, please, the last three minutes here. I think God wants to free many within our midst who've been trapped in these sins. This word is not to condemn. This word is meant to bring freedom and hope. He wants you to experience a Holy Spirit-inspired heart change to transform you. And so, let's put on thanksgiving together. See, God wants us to enjoy Him. He isn't trying to take away pleasures. He's trying to help us find true pleasure in Him. And He holds out true pleasure in a life lived in love as an offering for Him. So as we close in song, I want to encourage you to, just quickly, you don't have to beat yourself up, just quickly repent. Say, God, thanks for your forgiveness. And then cultivate thanksgiving as we offer our lives together because Jesus Christ has loved us and given himself up for us. Let's worship together.